Aloha, and welcome to the um, Prospero Sunday meeting. Uh, my name is Calvin Harris, and I am proud to be introducing our speaker for today. Uh, to get into this, I'd like to say a little bit of something about the Prospero, which is a school of spirit, <laughs> uh, call it spirituality. We call it ontology, the science of being. And at the heart of which is knowing an awareness and a, con a consciousness. As a school, we believe that education is lifelong and thus learning does not stop at the end of high school or college. We provide our alumni with life tools and the knowledge to use them in a way to unpack their baggage. Now, most uh, institutions will ask you to leave your bags at the door. The Prospero says, come in, let's unpack those bags so that we can have use of its contents. If unpacked correctly, you have right useness of your innate gifts in the service of yourself, your family, your community, and for the world. William Finney began the Prospero study in Scranton, Pennsylvania in 1973 as a young adolescent. <laughs> I like that word adolescent. You know that period of transition between childhood and adulthood that for some of us can last up to 50 years? <laughs> Uh, William is, uh, was known to us back, back then as Bill Finney. In 1974, he uh, moved to Santa Monica, California, to our then Prospero's main campus and headquarters uh, there in Santa Monica. And when he arrived, he found himself in the presence of other adolescents like Hugh John Melanophy and Richard Hartnett and Zoe Robinson, to name a few, all who were there in practice of those unpacking tools, such as RHS and translation. They did this in study groups and group dynamic situations, and they grew and became empowered adults. And to this day, they remain fast friends and dedicated fellow students. At the Prospero Server Center, he received training in skills that would provide an income over the, light, uh, over the course of his lifetime. But no skill more important than the experience of working consistently over time with study groups in a framework devised for the Prosperos by our master teacher, Zane of Hawaii. That framework is still in use today in the Prospero's audio study programs. Today, William lives in Silver Springs, Maryland, and works at the University of Maryland as an information service, services specialist. While keeping a keen focus, while on the other hand, keeping a keen focus on the operations, the maintenance, and continued development of the Prospero's Audio Center. We learn in the Prospero's that words have power. 
as Bill grew in his power and understanding, he was thus able to reclaim and move into his form, former, formal first name, which is William. And he did that in, 19, in the 1990s because he says he felt it was time to leave behind a certain personality uh, once and for all. He says that that tiny action actually had quite an impact. William is currently on the board of the Prosperous Trustees and is a member of the High Watch, a lifelong translator, and his subject for today is the consciousness of now. So I present to you, William Finney. Thank you very much, Bill. What a wonderful introduction. And what a wonderful way to um, get to meet again this wonderful group of people, so many of whom I know very well. I feel honored to be here and that you're here listening to what I'm about to say. Um, I think I'm going to ask uh, or suggest that um, uh, anyone who wishes to be seen on this call is certainly welcome to turn their camera back on. Um, this gives me the opportunity to see you and to feel like I'm speaking to something more than uh, um, a bunch of boxes. So that's your choice. Um, as you wish. So um, this, this was always going to be a fairly serious presentation. Um, the, the, you'll see in a little bit when I talk about it that um, there's some very serious um, issues to, to talk about. Um, however, uh, events uh, this weekend have precipitated yet another unexpected cataclysm on a society that's already reeling. And that has to do with uh, uh, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I think the best way to approach this is to read something uh, written by one of the journalists that I follow, a guy by the name of Dave Pell. He's got a great little digest that he puts out every day where he gives you a news digest um, and um, helps you to stay away from the constant news feed that is makes so easy to make you crazy. Anyway, Dave writes this. He says, I've never published on a Jewish high home, <coughs> and I likely never will again. But I'm making an exception for an exceptional moment involving an exceptional person, one who is likely the most notable Jewish woman in American history. I'm hopeful my rabbi will understand. I'm quite sure my mom and dad will. The Jewish holiday being celebrated today is called Rosh Hashanah. The words translate as the head of the year. God knows we could use a new year. And with any luck, this will be a Ruth Hashanah, a year when America returns to the ideals of one of its greatest leaders in the fight for equality and justice. Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The biblical name for this holiday is Yom Teruah, 
literally day of shouting or blasting. So consider this less of an affront to a Jewish holiday and more a special edition news blast. Today, Nina Totenberg tweeted, a Jewish teaching says those who die just before the Jewish New Year are the ones God has held back until the last moment because they were needed most and were the most righteous. It's considered a big deal if a person dies on Shabbat and an even bigger deal when it happens on Shabbat and Rosh Hashanah. Ginsburg died as the sun set into both. In Jewish tradition, this would make her a tzaddik, RVGT, a person of great righteousness. It's a shame to lose another one of those when America needs them most. Time for the rest of us to pick up the slack. So, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg played a remarkable role in establishing a rule of law that did not discriminate on the basis of gender. Now, things are far from settled. So, as we remember and feel the appropriate feelings of such a transition, I think I'd like to move us in another direction, which is to understand that uh, in the 50s and the 60s, when we talked about the uh, talked about the 21st century, we talked about stuff like flying cars and trips to Mars and becoming a space-faring civilization. Now that we're in the 20th century, what we write about and what we argue about is what gender we are. Or how we're going to describe that. Now, this is significant for a lot of reasons, but uh, to me, the most important thing about this is that um, it kind of... Uh, demonstrates or, or um, validates, or I don't know what the right word is, but it, it uh, refers to something that we heard in cosmic intention therapy class many years ago, which is that the evolution of consciousness uh, has developed a species which is not native to this planet, but native rather to eternity. And that the, the evolution of such a species requires a different kind of identity. So I personally feel like we're in the midst of a kind of nerve wracking working out a little bit more about what that identity is that can move into the 21st century. We certainly need to think about leaving behind a whole bunch of stuff that, that really should not be brought into the future. I think we're really fortunate because Heather Williams is going to be giving cosmic intention therapy next year. So I think that's a great thing that we should all look forward to. And I'm certainly going to be tuning into that. So 
um, this is a school, as Calvin was saying, is a school of ontology. And uh, in order to understand the message of ontology today, you, we need to look at where we stand in our current scene. Because um, any spiritual practice that's worth its muster um, relates you to the everyday of what you do. It relates to what's happening now, and it brings uh, in relationship to what's happening now some sense of a, an eternal principle, uh, an eternal perspective on, or an, in, uh, a perspective from a much higher view uh, of what's happening. And so what a, <clears throat> what a scene we have today. Um, we have a pandemic disease racking nations and continents, and we have wildfires burning unprecedented thousands of acres and bringing mass evacuations. That reminds me that Richard Burns has sent me uh, a link to probably, I think, the best article about this that I've seen yet from, uh, uh, I'll try and we'll send out, uh, maybe send out the link to it, but. Uh, I was actually going to write about it on the blog, so. Uh, but it's uh, it it addresses the uh, the fact that the wildfires that we're up against now are nothing like what we were used to before, and that the uh, the ongoing uh, changes in the climate uh, require an entirely new approach to dealing with um, the consequences of that change. So anyway. Um, climate change more broadly is expected to precipitate global migrations uh, in a series of crises over the next 30 years as populations move away from vulnerable uh, shoreside areas. Um, I think symbolically, for those of us who think symbolically, it's interesting that one of the major characteristics of the change is the changing shoreline. Because as you know, in, in the symbolic sense, the shoreline is the meeting place between the consci conscious and the unconscious, between the practical every day and the creative side of life. And so we have, uh, well, in, in Hawaii, of course, we have changing shorelines, <laughs> you know, that come from uh, Mount Pele. But this is, uh, we're talking about something now where the, actual interface between those parts of our lives, I think, um, is making a big change. Um, anyway, there are going to be these migrations and there's going to be, uh, that's going to bring crises to places that never had to deal with crises before. Um, inland communities that are suddenly going to be uh, uh, maybe overwhelmed or maybe at least having to adapt to an incoming uh, population. And also uh, as part of our kind of greatest hits of 2020. We have uh, tens of thousands of people in the streets protesting in one form or another uh, of social justice issues. Um, and uh, uh, of one perception or another. So I think the point, if we want to come quickly to it, um, the point of what, I'm, of what I'm gonna say today is that the times that we are living in really are not and should not be seen as a refutation of the principle of wholeness. The, the times should not make us believe 
um, that we are somehow bereft or somehow separated and apart from the intrinsic wholeness uh, of, uh, of our being and of, our, of the greater being, which is uh, our world. So but what, is, what is going on is that, that we are uh, being demanded uh, of more. <laughs> Something more is required of us in these times uh, in terms of our own practice and the way that we inter create an interface with the world. So our job, as it is, uh, as translators, and most of the people on this call are very experienced translators. I don't feel um, like I've got to go into this in great depth. But our job is to, to perform a great releasing. Uh, and that releasing will be unique to every person. Now, the reality of the innate self will provide guidance, as it always does. Um, because we're involved in the continual unfolding and uplifting of consciousness. So I'll get, come back to this a little bit later. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there are many people, and I work with them, <laughs> some of them, um, who believe that the upcoming presidential election will be a make-or-break decision on the future of the United States of America. And in that, I think they have a point. Um, it's a fundamental civic duty in a democratically organized society to, to cast a vote on the issues of the day. But I think it's, it's important, and this is why I said from the beginning this was going to be a fairly serious conversation, is that we, we should understand the scope of the forces at play here. Um, so just to give you the, uh, the TLDR, and for those of you who don't know, TLDR is something that you see uh, sometimes in an online essay or something. It's like a summary at the top. It's, it actually translates directly to, too long, didn't read, right? So, so the TLDR here is between now and the 2021 inauguration day, we are going to be subjected to a continuing barrage of strident martial energy. Um, and so I'll present the details here. I'm not gonna do a lot of interpretation for reasons that I'll mention, but uh, uh, I'll, I'll I'll get into the too long part now. <laughs> so, um, so there's been a lot said about the uh, conjunction of Saturn and Pluto in Capricorn. Um, so the astrological analyses are long and detailed, but uh, they boil down to cataclysmic contractions in existing institutions and establishments. Now that conjunction has happened, it's over. Um, Saturn is going retrograde and uh, will go back toward Pluto, but it will not meet Pluto again. So that, tra that transit is actually finished. Um, but it's been a killer. Um, Richard Tarnas uh, links this transit to world wars, and we have to say that COVID is absolutely on the level of a world war level catastrophe. Um, 
However, there's another series of aspects that I think they speak to our immediate future. Um, there, these, uh, honestly, this is why it's so important for translators to be aware of this and work on it. Um, we're, we have right now Mars separating from a, square to, from a square to Saturn over the past few weeks. So over the past few weeks, we've had this square of Mars and Saturn that's separating. And at the same time, of course, we've had the peak of moon wobble. And it's only, uh, I just point out without any making any claims, that it's very interesting that the moon wobble peak was the 17th of September. And um, the hideous fires that have been plaguing a lot of the West Coast between, you know, for the last three weeks are uh, some of them in abatement. And um, certainly the people that I've spoken with from that part of the world say that there's a definite change. Um, anyway, so this uh, square that's been separating um, is going to change because uh, this past week, Mars went retrograde. And um, it will form an exact square with Saturn on September 29th. Now, this just so happens, coincidentally, to be the exact same day that Saturn goes direct. So um, the next thing that happens is that Mars will form an exact square with Pluto on October 9th. Uh, and it will still be squaring Saturn at that time because the two planets are still very close together. And the next, it will form an exact square with Jupiter on October 18th. It continues retrograde through Aries. And as I said, to, I think Al and I are talking on the COVID Words podcast a couple of days ago, can there be any more, anything more obnoxious than Mars and Aries? <laughs> I know I'm going to get grief from Jim Renzo about that, but anyway. Um, Anyway, it still continues retrograde through Aries until it reaches 14 degrees on November 14th. Uh, on November 14th, which of course is several days after the election, it, it stations and goes direct again. So this trio of outer planets, Jupiter, Saturn, and Pluto, um, they, have been, they have been retrograding Capricorn for months. Um, Jupiter went direct on September 13th and is heading for a conjunction with Pluto on November 12th again, November 12th. Um, uh, and, and then it, it passes Pluto on November 13th and begins its long chase toward a conjunction with Saturn towards year's end. So there's been this dance of Saturn and Jupiter. Um, Saturn-Jupiter conjunctions happen every 20 years or so, and they really set a kind of mood for the, for the coming 20 years. And this has been a real tease because they've been close to each other for about 18 months. So finally, in December, um, Jupiter catches up with Saturn and finally uh, consummates that conjunction on December 21st, the solstice. At the same time that Mars, which is now direct, makes the first, its first in a series of squares going through the three planets again as they all move forward. So not, first it was Mars retrograde hitting those three planets. Now it's Mars going forward hitting the three planets. It begins with Pluto on the, summer sol or on the winter solstice itself. And by the way, just in case you needed more excitement, um, moon wobble will peak on December 11th when the sun and Mercury conjunct the south node. So the December moon wobble is going to be pretty wacky. Um, 
And of course, we just need to remind ourselves what is going to be happening at this time. It will be, you know, the weeks following the 2020 election. That's what's happening in the, well, this is the, for the Americans anyway, this is the American political thing. All right, so uh, the solstice moment sees Mars exactly square Pluto and Jupiter exactly conjunct Saturn at zero degrees Aquarius. So let me say that more correctly. Um, uh, Jupiter is exactly conjunct Saturn at zero degrees of Aquarius. Um, and that is being squared by Mars. Uh, squaring Pluto. I, that's, I got that. I got that way. You just don't pay attention to that. I'll have to come back. <laughs> Sorry. I wrote it in such a way that I can't understand what I'm saying here. Which one is which conjunct to which. All right. So it, in, in a way, it's, this, it's, it's ephemeral. What the details are ephemeral. Anyway, on Christmas Day, Mars is moving slowly away, but still square Pluto as the sun squares Chiron. And um, I'll toss in a note here that anybody who says they know what Chiron is about is probably wrong. Um, there's some excellent astrologers who've written good books about Chiron, but I still think we're way, 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 we don't know enough about what Chiron does to really say what it is. But anyway, um, the sun is going to square Chiron at the same time this other stuff is going on. And by New Year's Eve, Mars is in the final degrees of Aries and starting to square Jupiter and Saturn in early Aquarius. All right. I'm just throwing this stuff out at you and you don't need to remember any of the details because um, the most important thing about this is to understand that um, we have a lot of energy happening here. It's inescapable. It is going to make a difference in our world. If there's going to be a revolution in the United States of America, it will probably happen around January 13th, when there is a stellium of six planets, including the sun and the moon, from 23 degrees of Capricorn to eight degrees of Aquarius, all square to one degree or another, with a closing conjunction of Mars and Uranus in Taurus. Mars completes its conjunction with Uranus on January 20th. And on January 23rd, it has finished its squares with the outer planets and is separating from the conjunction with Uranus. So just coincidentally, if you can fathom this, all of this stuff that's happening is over two or three days after the election, uh, the, the inauguration. It's, it's just stunning to look at. Um, I have a note here that January 7th is going to be an important uh, marker because that's when um, Mars moves into Taurus. So um, you'll want to be paying attention January 7th, the week from January 7th to January 13th. Um, and now, having dumped all that stuff on you, um, what we're left with is how to make sense of all these data points. Um, you can study this stuff until your brain just turns into jello. 
Um, there's an awful lot of detail. It's really, astrology is made for Virgos. Um, and, and, and God bless them because <laughs> there is so much detail. There's so much detail. Um, and I'm a poor Gemini and I just, I'm lost, right? So <laughs> I, I need my Virgo pals to help me out. Um, but anyway, this is where you can get to the point where astrology and astrological analysis is not your friend. You can get so wrapped up in it um, that it's like uh, what Thane said about his medical training one time. Um, uh, sitting around the dinner table, he just said, well, it just gave me more stuff to unlearn. Um, so, I think the, the most productive way to think about this is to understand um, that we, these astrological dynamics can be useful if you, if you keep them in the, in the category of sense testimony. They tell a story. They're telling a story about this next period that we're up against in four months. Um, now th these kind of stories can be a very useful deep dive into the undercurrents of things that we can't see because on the surface things seem so confusing. So there's only one point really that I take from this uh, four month festival of Mars squares that, I, that, that I've just outlined for you. Um, what I think is important is that whatever the political outcome and all the hopes that people place in an election going forward, it, that's all very important, but in some ways it's ephemeral. Because what really counts is the evolution of consciousness. And what these squares are telling me is that no matter what happens on election day, um, the United States of America is faced with a situation where it needs to come to terms with a whole bunch of stuff. And it's not going to be an easy thing to do. Um, and because most of the people listening to this are people who live in the United States of America, this is, this is stuff on our plate for translation. This is our uh, karmic responsibility, you might say. This is something that, that's up to us to, to deal with and face in some way. Um, but what we're involved in on a greater scale, and I think which is more important, is that we're all involved in the evolution of consciousness. And that whatever the story is in the United States of America, and I, this is playing out, you know, all of this stuff is playing out in other places. You know, I don't know what it's like in Turkey for Ur and his family or for other people, but everybody's got a story around this, these transits. Um, and uh, we need to understand that we're involved in the evolution of consciousness and that that doesn't take place in, in smoke-filled rooms and in fact, I wonder, you know, do they still have smoke-filled rooms? You know, everybody's, they wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to have a smoke-filled room anymore, would you? They'd kick you out. Um, 
but at any rate, at any rate, the evolution of consciousness doesn't depend on you know people people meeting up and and you know some sort of secret cabal that does this and does that. I mean, isn't that like a wonderful idea that you might relieve you from all responsibility just knowing that there's a global conspiracy responsible for all this stuff? Then you wouldn't have to worry about it, right? It was just uh, somebody. Anyway. The evolution of consciousness is not separate from you and it's not separate from me. It's not separate from any of us. The evolution of consciousness is part of who we are because of the fact that we are consciousness. And when we say that, that you are consciousness, this is not sophistry on our part. It's not an intellectual gamesmanship. This con being consciousness is an existential fact. It's an existential fact. It's not, then nothing you can get away from. You can deny, oh no, I'm not consciousness. And in the denial of it, you're demonstrating. Anyway, so your, your consciousness is not separate from the evolution of consciousness. That's what I'm trying to say. And the evolution of consciousness includes you. So when you respond to some input that comes in your consciousness, um, maybe you've just gotten news of some uh, something that ha happened at work or some sort of political thing going on. Well, you have a choice about how you are going to respond to that. You can pick up your sign and go march, or you can sign a petition, or you can contribute to a cause. You know, all of these things are within your reach. Uh, you can sulk. That, that's an option too. Um, however, there is another possibility which doesn't rule out any of the above. And that is that you can understand that you are an individuation of consciousness and that as an individuation of consciousness, there, you have a power. Um, and that power is that, that you have as consciousness have the power to clarify uh, in your thinking, you have the power to clarify what you have been exposed to, what the, sense testimony is that's been dumped on you by uh, uh, a, an, an incessant news media and, and social media that does not let us escape from uh, uh, news all day long, um, that you, as you're in your individuation of consciousness, you have the power um, to clarify that in your consciousness. You work in your awareness to clarify what has been, uh, what you're seeing. And when we do this, we, we bring it to a different context. We change the context. And then this is more than just reframing it. But we change the context um, to a context that is um, outside of uh, the usual material limitations that we have agreed to. You know, we usually think of ourselves as living in a certain kind of world at a certain kind of time. You know, we have schedules that we have to meet. We have things we need to do, um, responsibilities and such. And the power of our consciousness is to change our awareness so that we bring in a context of something which you might call infinite being or infinite context and in the context of infinity 
you see whatever it is that's, uh, uh, that's in your consciousness in a completely different way. So in a way, this is like geological time. It's like, um, if you remember that series that Carl Sagan did, um, Cosmos, there was one lesson in that where he talked about, uh, about the cosmic calendar. And he had a stage set and he walked around in the stage set and he showed, you know, how many months in the cosmic calendar it took for the earth to uh, arrive after the beginning of the Big Bang and how many eons it was before the dinosaurs came. In. And then he shows you that it's a certain moment, uh, you know, that, that, that the, the appearance of humans on the planet was like, uh, like, like three minutes to midnight of yesterday. <laughs> So it's, you, you get the sense of how vast we're talking about. It's a vast kind of context in which to think of your life. So in the context of infinite consciousness, if we really uh, examine what we mean by infinite consciousness, um, you know, the entire history of the universe, that whole thing that Sagan talked about, uh, is, is just as puny as the, what he, you know, the human slice that he talked about. The entire history of the universe is, is, uh, is the blink of an eye in, in eternity, in infinity. And in uh, that kind of context, then we can see things and uh, understand things differently. Now, obviously, we're not talking about a materialistic viewpoint here. When you talk about the infinite, you've automatically, you've, you've, you've gotten beyond uh, a materialistic idea. Because as soon as you say infinite, and if you understand consciousness as being uh, uh, non-material, um, as soon as you say that, then you know that you're dealing with the boundless. And, and, and the boundless is necessarily non-material. Because if it has a boundary, then... <laughs> And it's it's not boundless. If you have if you have a boundary, and something's material, like I can see in my picture, I can see there's a bookcase behind me. So that bookcase has dimensions. It has it has a, a width and a height and depth. Um, it has boundaries. It's material, uh, apparently. Um, and so, if you're dealing with something that's boundless, then then the boundaries go away. You're dealing with something that is abstract. It's not uh, uh, defined by certain boundaries. Now, this is the nature of your consciousness. You, you may be identified as a person who has, uh, you know, certain physical issues or your um, um, certain height. You have a certain weight, all these things. Um, as far as your consciousness is concerned, that's sense testimony. Your consciousness is not defined by your weight or your height. Your consciousness is, uh, is boundless. Anyway, <clears throat> when you choose to bring that awareness to bear upon the appearances that interrupt your life and that disturb your peace, 
um, then you have the opportunity to make a contribution to the evolution of consciousness because your participation as an individuation of consciousness changes the evolution of consciousness. It's, you're not anywhere else. You're, you are in it. You are an individuation of infinite consciousness and your step to understanding makes a contribution to consciousness and the evolution of consciousness. So all of these, uh, I, I, you know, hideous Mars transits, they have an obverse side. And uh, it's only consciousness that's going to be able to get to that obverse side. And as we do the work to do that flipping of those energies to understand the boundless potential energy that's there, um, that is going to make a huge difference um, for everybody going forward. <clears throat> so the most uh, powerful guide for you for the next uh, four months while we're working through all this stuff, the most powerful guide for you is going to be your own intuition. <clears throat> that's where you're going to find uh, calmness and serenity and peacefulness is in your own intuition by, by addressing yourself to whatever it is that comes up for you around all this stuff. Um, who knows what it's going to be? Every person's going to have their own set of reactions. And every single one of those reactions is a doorway that you can follow to go in to discover something that you never thought about or considered as a possibility in terms of your deep understanding of the nature of your own being and the nature of uh, the, the our being as consciousness. So seek, uh, seek insights by diving into your reactions to the unfolding events and applying your consciousness until you reach the place where you are seeing face to face and not in a glass darkly, where your high watch has lifted your awareness to an unexpected height and your understanding grows in unpredictable and extraordinarily beautiful ways. <clears throat> now to end, I think I'll simply um, uh, quote you something. Uh, that talks about or, or refers to, I think what we're all after and what we, what's, what's really needed now. And that is uh, what's really needed is that we need a greater degree of realization. We need a greater degree of understanding uh, the nature of being. So um, in 1986, back in those old, old days, um, one of the bad boys of rock and roll, a guy by the name of Steve Winwood, came out with a new album. And he was a veteran of the acid scene. I mean, he was part of, uh, part of traffic. He was uh, with blind faith. And he was, and, you know, just, if you could go into any excess during the, uh, the 60s era, he probably did. Anyway, he came out with this album in 1986 called Back in the High Life. 
And it was a complete turnaround. Um, and it just proves just what happens to an artist when you have a real genuine artist. They are always changing. They're always doing something new. They never get stuck in wherever they were. Anyway, so he opens this song with a, he opens the album with a song called Higher Love. It is one of my favorite songs. And he says, um, think about it. There must be higher love. Down in the heart or hidden in the stars above. Without it, life is wasted time. Look inside your heart. I'll look inside mine. Things look so bad everywhere. And this whole world, what is fair? We walk blind and we long to see, falling behind in what could be. Bring me a higher love. Bring me a higher love. It's that higher love I keep thinking of. So we're seeking a higher love. We're seeking a greater degree of realization. And I think the world needs us to advance in our understanding and come to that greater degree of realization, higher love. <clears throat> Ontology takes the attitude that infinite good, infinite wholeness, infinite integrity, infinite consciousness is already an accomplished fact. So everything we do is unlearning to reveal that higher love. Thanks a lot.